Evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the annual uh, Reuters Memorial Lecture, which has uh, established itself as one of the most interesting uh, evenings in the university's calendar. Um, and I'm delighted that we have as our lecturer today um, Emily Bell, um, gone straight since she learned law at uh, Christchurch. Um, Professor of Professional Practice and Director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School uh, in New York, of course. Um, Emily was Director of Digital Content for Britain's Guardian News and Media from 2006 to 2010. Um, before that, she was Editor-in-Chief of Guardian Unlimited from 2001 to 2006. Uh, and uh, that was a period, of course, when um, the Guardian website received uh, a large number of awards. Uh, Emily started her journalistic career um, at The Observer in 1990 as a business reporter who specialised in media business, in marketing and in technology. Uh, today, while she's based in New York, she remains a leading media commentator in the United Kingdom, writing about broadcasting and writing about uh, policy issues in the media uh, as well. She's going to speak to us tonight on Silicon Valley and journalism make-up or break-up. Um, she'll be, uh, um, after her lecture, there'll be a discussion chaired by um, Tim Gardham, the principal of this college and chair of the Reuters Institute uh, Steering Committee. Uh, and he'll be uh, chairing a discussion and opening up for questions uh, after Emily has spoken. But I'd just like to say what a great pleasure it is to welcome uh, Emily back to Oxford and to welcome her to St. Anne's this evening. And Emily, we're looking forward to what you've got to say. Thank you, Lord Patton. I have to say, um, when I left Oxford as an undergraduate in 1987, I did not expect to be invited back to speak. Um, so I want to thank uh, David uh, Levy and the Reuters Institute for inviting me here to speak today. Um, it's a great honour to be speaking to such a distinguished uh, crowd uh, and in an audience which has really been so key for centuries in nurturing free speech uh, and thought, which has had an impact on the world. And there are not many of us actually in the realm of uh, doing journalism research, which should be of use to the industry. So from my vantage, vantage point of being a director at the Tower Centre, uh, we looked at the Reuters Institute here as being something of a model in this field. Um, and as I say, I'm really delighted to be back at Oxford, which is my alma mater. Um, and it was here really that I sort of fell in love with journalism as a craft. Um, and I'm very grateful to the Oxford tutorial system for allowing me such latitude with my studies uh, that I spent far more time thinking about news deadlines at Charwell 
than I did about the vagaries of jurisprudence. As I said, the Law Society hasn't invited me back to speak yet. <laughs> Maybe they will one day. Um, and it's also somewhat daunting uh, to have to uh, discuss whatever it is I've got to say with my former boss, never agree to do that, it's a horrible thing. Um, it's bad enough having Alan Prosperger uh, commenting on things I've written when um, I was paid uh, to do that, um, but it's truly daunting. And Vivian Schiller, uh, who, uh, as a former chief executive of NPR, along with Alan, is uh, one of the individuals who I think has done so much for public service journalism um, or journalism in the public realm. Um, so it's great to have them. And I'm also delighted that Madhav Chinapa from uh, Google is here because Google played a great role in actually the formation of this lecture this evening. Um, you didn't get that, did you? Okay. Uh, or maybe you did. Uh, so what I really want to talk about this, this, this evening um, is this idea of public service journalism and what it should be in the digital realm and what some of the key issues are that we have to resolve. Uh, my past in journalism, uh, as Lord Patton said, encompassed writing about the media business uh, and then really sort of encompassed the great delight of helping The Guardian uh, think about what it could be in, a, in an altered world where it was no longer um, either a local paper in Manchester or a national paper uh, for the UK, but, but a, a force in global journalism. Um, now, uh, in my current role, I think about how we educate journalists into the next generation. And so it's something that me and my colleagues at Columbia Journalism School spend a great deal of time thinking about. Uh, and we think particularly about how journalism and technology intersect. Um, I think it's a very important moment for the relationship between journalism and technology, and in particular, the relationship between journalism and the social media platforms, uh, nearly all of whom reside and, and were indeed uh, burst in Silicon Valley. Uh, institutions, I think, like Reuters, The Guardian, BBC, New York Times, NPR, and new types of news organisations like BuzzFeed, WikiLeaks, Global Voices, and whatever comes next, I think that we're now entering a phase of development where the relationships between those organisations and the extensive, extensible social platforms, which are now spanning the globe, uh, will really redefine journalism in a very different way. Uh, for Paul, from Paul Reuter through to John Rees at the BBC, the pioneers of journalism have also been pioneers, generally speaking, of communications technology, at least up until uh, the later half of the 20th century. Um, today we've reached a point of transition, though, when news spaces are no longer owned by newsmakers. The press is no longer in charge of the free press, uh, it's lost control of the main conduits through which stories reach audiences. And the public sphere is now operated by a very small number of private companies based in Silicon Valley. Uh, professional journalism is augmented by untold numbers of citizen journalists who now break news, they add context, and they report through social platforms. To have our free speech standards, our reporting tools and publishing rules set by unaccountable software companies is a defining issue. And I think it's defining not just for journalism, I think it's also defining for the rest of society as well. Uh, I'm not going to argue that this is reversible, a regrettable, reversible trend, because I, I don't think it is. I don't think it is reversible. And I don't actually think it's that regrettable as, as things stand at the moment. But I am going to argue that journalism has an important role in building and deploying new technologies and shaping the non-commercial parts of the new public sphere and holding to account these extensive 
and new systems of power. So I should also have a series of wizzy graphics. I realise this because um, it's a digital lecture. Uh, so I'm going to crowdsource them. When I, when, I, when I think of something you should be looking at, I'll tell you what it is and you can Google it on your phone. <laughs> under, under images. So watch out for that. Um, I want to start actually with an, with an anecdote which happened um, here in Oxford uh, a few years ago. Uh, not that many years ago, actually, probably about six or seven. Um, Alan may remember clearer than I do because we were, we were together on this trip. Um, a number of us attended uh, a, a, an event called um, Silicon Valley Comes to Oxford, which is held at the Said Business School, uh, where you have the alums of the business school um, who've all gone off and been fantastically successful in Silicon Valley coming back um, and paying homage uh, and having a conference. Uh, and, and, and this year we had a, a sort of a side meeting before the main conference got underway, where news executives and founders of Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, uh, a couple of other sort of quite influential companies met. Um, they were all men, if I remember correctly. Uh, and we were discussing the, the issues facing at that time the news industry. Inevitably, talk turned to how essentially our business models as, as journalists were under pressure uh, from the disaggregation of news um, and how the shifting of advertising revenue from uh, bundled media into uh, digital media was um, really uh, stuffing us. Uh, one of the executives who was listening very patiently um, actually sort of slightly ran out of patience uh, and finally said, look, he said, this is what's happened. We listened to what users wanted and we gave it to them. We also listened to what advertisers wanted and we connected them to those audiences. Media companies didn't and you lost. To hear how Silicon Valley is most successful, this is an executive from a search company you may have heard of. Um, <laughs> though I think it was Chatham House Rules or something, it's a long time ago anyway. To adhere to journalistic standards of protecting my sources. But to say, hear how one of Silicon Valley's most successful companies thought about us was like an early introduction to the ice bucket challenge. And after we'd left the room, we stood sort of huddled on the pavement. Uh, and the senior editor piped up and said, well, it's all very well, isn't it? But we're not really in the same business, are we? If only that were true, how completely unnecessary this conversation would be. We could all go home to watch The X Factor right now. Um, we're not really in their business, are we? The two cultures of engineering and journalism are very different. They don't share the same motivations. They, don't, they haven't shared the same skills. They don't seek the same outcomes. And they certainly don't share, share the same growth and revenue models, not at the moment. Yet they are occupying the same space in terms of conveying news and public discussion. In one way, in one way the editor was actually right. Uh, Silicon Valley companies didn't and still don't employ journalists to actually create news. Uh, they don't seek cultural or political impact in the same way that news organisations do or in the furtherance of democracy uh, or to push a particular political point of view. Um, and they don't really have as their core purpose much outside delivering utility to users and returning money to shareholders is very, very important. Um, on the other hand, I thought then and really strongly believe now that even as a distinct field of practice, journalism's future is inextricably linked to 
and increasingly dependent on communication technologies. The fourth estate, which likes to think that it operated in splendid isolation from other systems of money and power, has slipped suddenly and conclusively into a world where it no longer uh, owns the means of production or controls the routes to distribution. How this happens is pretty well documented. Uh, none of us, actually I'm saying none of us, put your hand up if you do, uh, none of us holds uh, Stanford engineering PhDs. Does anybody hold a Stanford? No, I didn't think so. Um, there's no shame in that. Many people don't. So we lacked, at the outset, fundamental technological literacy to understand how these new systems of distribution expression were going to emerge. We lacked also the institutional will or insight to move swiftly enough or in the right direction. Uh, and we were held back in some ways by transformation of large legacy businesses, which actually our audiences and revenues uh, were attached to those legacy businesses. So to some extent, our lack of speed in this direction is understandable. And also it's worth saying that doing journalism well is a really hard, resource-hungry business. There is a reason why it is not something that Silicon Valley has jumped into with both feet. News companies actually also make it hard to publish, while social media companies make it very easy to publish. Consequently, nearly everything these days is published and shared at some point on a social platform. As news organisations cease to print physical <coughs> newspapers and as uh, television companies ceased to uh, dominate our time and dominate the airwaves uh, to survive the buffeting of on-demand services. And as services become, these journalism services, they don't just become digital first, but actually digital only. Uh, journalism and free expression becomes part of this commercial sphere where activities of, the activities of news and journalism are actually very marginal. They're really minority sport when it comes to the things that... Uh, we publish and discuss on social media every day. Um, it's really worth noting that whilst engineers who've developed Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Reddit, Pinterest, Ello, Medium, WhatsApp, Snapchat, Kickstarter, and others, in all of that time, not one existing journalism or media company has conceived or developed a widely adopted social platform. And only two, MySpace and Reddit, required by media companies, by News Corp and Condé Nast respectively. That's actually quite a record for 20 years when you consider the way that publishing has been moving. Equally, social media platforms have been insistent that they are not interested in the difficult and expensive business of employing actual journalists or making editorial decisions. Their culture is as alien to reporting as ours is to designing social software. Of course, this is not necessarily true. Every algorithm contains editorial decisions. Every piece of software design carries social implications. If the whole world connects high at, at high speed in 140 characters, it changes the nature both of discourse and it changes the nature of events. It's very thrilling and empowering. It's also terif terrifying and threatening. Uh, the language of news is now actually shaped by engineering protocols, not by newsrooms. And on the whole, the world, I would say, is a better place for it. You can disagree with me later. Uh, and I'm fairly sure that the Labour Party Communications Department is going to be disagreeing with me right now. Uh, if there is a free press, journalists don't, they're not in charge of it. 
engineers who rarely think about journalism or cultural impact or democratic responsibility are making decisions every day that shape how news is created and disseminated. In creating these amazingly easy-to-use tools and encouraging the world to publish, the platform technologies now have a social purpose and responsibility far beyond their original intent. Legacy media, I don't think, realised what it was losing, and Silicon Valley didn't really understand what it was creating. So the numbers. Facebook has 800 million active users, 1.3 billion accounts worldwide. Uh, a recent survey from Pew showed that 30% of American adults now consider they get their news through Facebook. Uh, and I went back and looked at the numbers and saw that in 2011, the same metric was lower than 11%. Uh, and that was counting both Facebook and Twitter. So just in two years, we've really gone from this being a marginal conduit to us understanding and, 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 and getting news to being a really sort of mainstream outlet. YouTube has a billion uh, users and a hundred hours of videos uploaded every minute. So since I've been talking, that's probably about, I don't know, kind of 1,500 uh, hours of video have um, been uploaded onto YouTube. Uh, Twitter has almost 300 million active users. Uh, an Indiana University survey showed that uh, in the US, 80% of journalists now use Twitter to find out about breaking news and 60% of them use it directly as a source for stories. So again, if you're using the same mechanisms to source stories uh, and to talk to each other, you can see how enormously influential these conduits are. I have to say, as a journalism professor, I do wonder what the 40% who aren't using it as a source for stories are actually doing, um, or indeed the 20% who are not using it for breaking news. Um, maybe they work for the New Yorker. Uh, <laughs> That always gets a bigger laugh in New York. <laughs> Weibao, which is the uh, Chinese social network, is actually bigger than all of them by some size. Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, WeChat, there's another one. There's probably been another one started in the last five minutes. They're rapidly becoming the default platforms for younger audiences. To be clear, as I've said before, none of these stories, none of these platforms actually create stories and they all, all film or record them or any of that. Uh, but the way that we push stories to these platforms uh, and how they encourage us to, to, to push them to us uh, by news organisation uh, who want really the powerful distribution me mechanisms matters. Um, it, we're in the age now of sharing and liking news as opposed to simply uh, publishing it. Uh, no other branded platform in the history of journalism has had as much influence as Facebook has right at this precise moment. Uh, and if one believes all the studies that say by 2020 we'll, we're talking about 20 billion connected devices uh, across the face of the earth and we're talking about a doubling uh, of the number of people who are currently uh, connected to the internet through high-speed uh, connections, you can see that this isn't, again, a reversible trend, that these lenses and platforms are simply going to carry on accruing uh, more and more users. Um, how do you make sense of news? This is where I'll ask you to Google on your phones uh, Facebook news algorithm and click image and there'll be a green thing with some writing on it. Um, so Facebook uses that. It uses a series of complicated formulae. In fact, all technology companies use algorithms to sort everything. 
uh, and they use that to decide which news rises to the top. Um, they dictate, these algorithms dictate not just what we see, but they also provide the foundation of the business model for social platforms. They're commercially very sensitive. Uh, they're open, as one of my panellists pointed out to me before we, we, we came in here this evening. He said they're also open to spam, so they're kept very tightly controlled and very opaque. Uh, and so as a consequence of this, social platforms, when they alter an algorithm, can do so without any of us seeing or knowing exactly what they're doing. So news organisations that want their news to perform well on social platforms have to guess at what it is that will push you up the Facebook rankings. So it could be, for instance, using a teasing headline, like a cat fell out of a tree and you'll never guess what happened next. Though normally the cat falling out of the tree is the whatever happened next. Um, one news executive recently described to me how the Facebook news algorithm is now the most single most important way that readers find his journalist stories. He added, but we don't know very much about it, uh, and that scares the hell out of me. If one believes the numbers attached to Facebook, then the world's most powerful news executive is a man called Greg Mara, M-A-R-R-A, who is 26, because he is the product director, product manager for the Facebook news algorithm. Um, if you look at it, look up his profile on Twitter. He's a very affable-looking young man. Um, I think he likes skateboarding. Uh, in a recent piece in the New York Times, which is where he was featured, he was quoted as saying, we try to explicitly view ourselves as not editors, he said. We don't want to have editorial judgment over the content that's in your feed. You've made your friends, you've connected to the pages you want to connect to, and you are the best decider for the things that you care about. You should visit my house sometime with all those teenage children in it. Um, However, by, even by making actually that decision that says you're the best person to decide what you see in the news, that's a very profound editorial judgment that Facebook has made with actually pretty widespread societal impacts. If we're all choosing and reinforcing our own filters and there's no way to correct or interrupt those, then you can see what happens over time to a refined news feed. We don't have... We don't want to have editorial judgment. That's a key phrase because you hear it over and over and over again in Silicon Valley companies. Um, you also hear things like, we're just a platform, or even technology is neutral. We don't make editorial decisions. I actually think engineers actually truly believe this. In fact, I know they do. I went to talk to a class of 40 engineers the other day as part of my penance for working in academia. Um, in, the, in an interdisciplinary program that we run at Columbia. Uh, and I thought, well, I can't really tell, even though we teach computational, uh, computational science and journalism together, I can't read, they're master's students in engineering, I can't teach them anything about this. So I just talked to them about journalism. Um, and we ended up role-playing the uh, Twitter troll story uh, of the Madeleine McCann case. Uh, and we role-played right the way down the line, saying there's somebody who's been spamming this hashtag or the, with, the, with the, the McCann hashtag. Sky News find out who it is. They pursue this person. The engineering students are really getting into it. And then at the end, I, I, I dropped the punchline or the unfortunate consequence, which was that three days later, Brenda Leyland uh, killed herself, um, which you want to see a room full of uh, engineering students to deflate very quickly. And one of them said, but you're not saying, are you, that the technology is to blame? And it's like, well, that's an interesting concept because obviously there is something about the speed of exchange, the filters that we put on things, 
which is going to produce certain outcomes in certain, in certain contexts. And I thought it was very interesting that you can actually get to be a master's student in uh, computer engineering without having a moral discussion uh, about the impact of technology. And the chair of the CS department told me that was actually very common, that uh, in general it's not something you learn as an engineer. Sorry, anyway, yes. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, actually, I was interviewing Dick Costello, who's the uh, chief executive of Twitter, and I said to him, congratulations on running the free press of the 21st century. He kind of grimaced and said, hmm, it's not really how we like to think of it. Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are not stupid. Uh, they really don't want to be known as editing, shaping culture, because they know it's a hard, thankless task, which has plenty of pushback, uh, and it's a very unprofitable business. But their unintentional editing carries with it unpredictable consequences. This summer, an academic and blogger, Zeynep Tefeci, who I think is actually one of the most intelligent commentators uh, in this space, uh, and if you want to know about sociology, media and technology, you should follow her. Uh, she was following the social unrest in Ferguson, which is a uh, small suburb outside St. Louis, where a young black man, Michael Brown, had been shot uh, by a police officer. He was unarmed. Uh, it appeared to be uh, another case of a police shooting. Uh, people took to the streets and there were nights and nights of rioting, tear gas. Zainab noted that while her Twitter feed was full of reports from Ferguson, nothing was appearing on Facebook. Overnight, the Facebook algorithm started to work, filtering stories to appear. But these were quite a long time after the first mentions of the story and the discussion had been, had been going on a less, in a less filtered forum. So Facebook's algorithm had decided that Zeynep was not as immediately interested in Ferguson as she was in the Ice Bucket Challenge, which she said was what she was seeing constantly in her feed. And everybody likes the Ice Bucket Challenge, so people were liking it and there was more of it. Um, she also wondered whether, without the social signals from other unfiltered platforms, she would have ever, ever really got to hear about Ferguson at all. Uh, and she, this, is, this, was, this was something which, again, is, is, is unanswered, because if those other platforms go away or those other routes to media go away, what then happens when stories don't fit the algorithm? So if we navigate our daily lives through social platforms, just how this, uh, just how this information reaches us, what's on a trending list, again, is another way that people navigate the news, uh, and how these algorithms work. Doesn't become, it's, not, it's no longer of marginal interest, but it's actually a central democratic concern. Even the obscure issue of equal access to the internet or net neutrality can affect how we get on news and information. Again, Tefeki suggested that without what she called the neutral side of the internet, such as live streams and also uh, Twitter streams, where feeds are determined not by opaque or per algorithms, but by individual choices, people might not be talking about some of these issues at all. The general public has been relatively unaware of how these intimate social platforms might be used in uh, slightly different ways to, to, to the way that they imagine. So in June this year, for instance, the findings of an academic experiment were published in which Facebook had manipulated the news feeds of about 700,000 users over, over a week. Uh, it wanted to see how changing the type of news that was in a feed might affect a user's mood. So this is the ultimate, does anyone remember Martin Lewis and his Why Isn't There More Good News campaign? Yes. So this, is, so this was a sort of a, an engineering experiment, which goes, if we give people good news all the time, 
will they be inclined to post in a, will, will, will their posts take on a slightly more upbeat nature? Um, and the answer was yes, marginally. It was measurable, it was a legal academic survey. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it. Um, but when it became public, uh, there was a huge backlash in the States. Uh, the idea that Facebook would be literally toying with our emotions was quite troubling. Um, Facebook's under no obligation, incidentally, to disclose how it manipulates the newsfeed. Um, and it might well, and I'm sure it has, conducted thousands of such experiments internally to try and maximise its advertising revenues without anybody knowing about them at all. It's also striking that the public expectation of how information reaches them is still, I suppose the best way of describing it, is relatively naive. If Facebook can nudge our emotions towards happiness or sadness by manipulating what you see on your feed, can it use the same sorts of algorithms to influence something more sinister, such, for instance, as the way we vote? Well, it turns out, yes, they can. Uh, in 2010, Facebook conducted another experiment to see whether issuing voting prompts in certain feeds increased turnout. And again, the results were positive. When they told certain <coughs> populations to vote, then the average attendance, the average, the average turnout for those populations ticked up. As Harvard Law Professor Jonathan Zetrain pointed out, what would happen if Mark Zuckerberg, who is the very perky young man in the hooded sweatshirt who uh, founded Facebook, for those of you who don't know, um, what if he decided to tweak an algorithm uh, so that only voters who favoured a particular party or candidate were prompted to vote? Now, actually, if you put this question to people at Facebook, they go, the thing is, the edge rank algorithm is so complicated, it's just impossible to imagine that one person could ever have that influence on that sort of thing. That would never happen, ever. If you talk to engineering professors, they say, no, that's actually nonsense. Um, you could get to a point where you can manipulate populations in that way. So in a way, we're relying on these social platforms being good actors, not bad actors. So Train actually draws a very interesting parallel here between that kind of manipulation and, for instance, subliminal, subliminal advertising, which in the 1970s was uh, banned uh, on American television. I think banned everywhere, actually. And, of course, there's, you have a television licence. So if you run subliminal advertising, you can always have your licence revoked. There's no regulation uh, that relates to any way that software companies currently construct their internal mechanisms. So there's no sanction if that, kind of, if that kind of tinkering goes. What Zedrain said was, as more and more of what shapes our views and behaviours comes, comes from inscrutable, artificial intelligence-driven processes, the worst-case scenarios should be placed off-limits in ways that don't trip over into restrictions on free speech. So he's asking for a very balanced and careful negotiation between censorship and regulation. Twitter, which I think is, I still would stand behind my rather controversial assertion that it's the most useful tool for journalists since the telephone, um, is also, it doesn't, it doesn't run the same sort of filtered algorithms, but it's under pressure now as a publicly quoted company, um, and it's finding it has completely different new editing challenges. So, for instance, this summer when ISIS circulated the first beheading videos of American um, journalist James Foley, they came out through ISIS's Twitter feed. Uh, now, Twitter has a policy, which is it doesn't take down 
if something, unless something is illegal or, or authorities complain, and it tries to keep all channels open at, at, at all points. Um, but in a departure from established practice, Dick Costello, uh, who's the chief executive, um, announced not only would the uh, account that was carrying the video be shut down, but so would any account, the accounts that were, that were consistently retweeting it. Um, now, to those of us who are used to making editorial decisions, that seems like a relatively uncontroversial call. Uh, but actually, to people who saw Twitter as being a, an unmediated conduit of free speech, uh, again, this sparked debate about how troubling it was that you could suddenly have editorial interventions with no accountability, uh, deciding that certain types of content could be removed. If we, can all remit, if we can all agree, and I don't know that we could, that removing an ISIS video was a, a good idea, what about something where we were less in agreement? Citizen journalists, professional journalists, because I don't, I don't want this conversation about journalism to be limited to people who are paid to be journalists. I, I believe that this r relates to all civic, um, civic material, which is uploaded and actually civic software activists have been way ahead of journalism in this and, and, and shown the way probably sort of, if you like, cut the path that we should now be following corporately. Um, but citizen journalists, professional journalists and news companies are trying to work out how to secure more attention for their work in an environment that they don't control. And technologists are struggling to come to terms with the full implications of being news agencies to the world. A senior executive on a social platform admitted to me recently, and I've had another one corroborated, so it's a second source, so even though it's anonymous, it's actually fine for me to include it in the speech, um, acknowledged that this editing process for their, problem was for their platform was deeply problematic, and it was a persistent and growing problem. He said, we don't have a system for it. He said, every time something like this happens, there are half a dozen people who scramble into a war room, uh, and they make these decisions up on the fly. Um, I then double-checked this, cross-checked this with two other social platform companies. They admitted that exactly the same thing happens in their organisations too, that there is no system for this. Uh, journalism in all its forms grapples on a daily basis with similar problems and might have things to offer, I think, in terms of how these more explicit cultural filters can be built. Probably the most vivid example of friction between the new platforms and the traditional role of the press uh, the, traditional, the, the traditional role of the press um, is embodied in the remarkable set of stories uh, that were published by Alan and his team um, in America uh, around the National Security Agency leaks through Edward Snowden. Um, here we saw very vividly how the tools that we all use for private exchange, Gmail, Skype, uh, social media our telephones, almost anything, in fact, they're already fatally compromised by being part of a surveillance state. <laughs> Platforms like Google said they were, they were aghast, completely aghast, at how their infrastructure had been tapped for information by security agencies. Yet Google publishes a transparency report every year where it notes that it gets um, tens of thousands of requests for user information from federal agencies in the States, it complies with roughly 90% of those requests. Now, it's highly transparent that it should tell us that that's what the level of request response is. But nevertheless, you can't really imagine a journalism company saying to police when they come through the front door, 
uh, yes, that's fine, we'll give over all of this user information. We should, and we don't really know what those requests are for. That, again, is, is confidential, and it's not something that Google has ever published. Um, this week, Ethan Zuckerman, sorry, this is a parade of um, uh, American academics, but it's kind of interesting the thinking that's going on in this area, because I think it tends to predate the action. Um, he directs the Civic Media Lab at MIT. Uh, we have a strand of work at the Tau Centre called Journalism After Snowden, because when we saw the stories that were coming out of The Guardian, uh, and we realised how profound the implications were for the technologies, and particularly for keeping your sources safe in the 21st century, that we should do some research and exploration around this, that we should try and build some tools to train journalists to be safe, uh, and we should try and think about what this means in a broader policy term. Uh, so Ethan came to sort of talk about what he thought, um, and he argued very persuasively um, that if those leaks have taught us anything, it's really that journalism now has a new role in creating what he calls non-surveyed spaces. So in other words, it's a different way of saying civic spaces for public discourse. In other words, places where you don't, you're not tracked, you're not tracked by advertisers. He illustrated it has to be said, I'm sorry Aaron, by putting up a slide of the, uh, or putting up a, a live demonstration of the Guardian's website, where he then opened a bar that showed you that there were 50 different companies tracking you at any one time on any part of the page uh, and returning data um, back, to, uh, back to source for probably commercial purposes. And he pointed out, when you know, I'm complicit in this as well, that one of the reasons that we have a free model of um, content on the web is that in the early days it was very, very, very hard to build payment systems. But it was very easy to build tracking systems. This was, a, this was again, a decision that was made by um, software engineers. You know, everything should be open, everything should be, should be free, um, but we'll have to pay for it, so we must drop these tracking technologies. So he did point out that actually by... Weirdly, by championing open journalism, uh, The Guardian had somehow managed to create a surveillance state. I'm not sure why, quite by that last link. But again, it was very interesting. It's very interesting to think how these decisions that are made outside the public sphere are now really affecting it. Um, I think Ethan's actually hit on something which the next generation, maybe even the current generation of journalists, must take on board, which is to preserve our role in any kind of robust way we must stop relying solely on the tools and the platforms of others and build our own. Which I know from the buzz in the room, you're all really looking forward to that particular task. <laughs> Maybe this is a joint project, as we already see those who've made fortunes in software companies are curious about journalism too. And it has to be said that that's been with some mixed success. But for instance, Pierre Midyar of eBay has said that he would put $250 million into a journalism startup. We'll first look there. The last couple of weeks have seen some very messy departures from there, apparently because he was scrutinising their expenses, and I did think there was no more vivid illustration of a culture clash <laughs> than journalists not understanding why someone who has $250 million to give them might be interested in the way it was being spent. Um, Jeff Bezos, who's the founder of Amazon, recently bought the Washington Post also for $250 million. That seems to be a magic number somehow. That's clearly the change that you find down the back of the sofa if you're a billionaire equates to around $250 million. Um, and therefore, you can afford to spend it on journalism and not see another penny. Um, and Chris Hughes, who founded Facebook, um, took over one of the oldest and sort of most revered 
brands in uh, American magazine journalism in the form of the New Republic. Um, though he somewhat upset the old girl this week by suggesting that it might not be a magazine, um, rather a digital set of digital, again, culture clash. Um, I don't actually think it's feasible for journalism um, or civic media to have a completely adversarial relationship with technology companies, uh, because I think if we do a bit like the man in the room at Oxford all those years ago, I think we'll lose. Um, but I think it's also absolutely imperative that there's a public sphere of which journalism is a part, which isn't wholly reliant on them. Uh, we have in the world, probably in this room even, a significant amount of intellectual capital and some monetary capital dedicated to public service journalism. Uh, if we include the mission to make communications technology fit for a free press within the definition of public service journalism, then we already should be starting somewhere. Uh, everyone who works in that sphere should push hard on three initiatives, which is what I'm going to leave you with and what we, we can discuss. Well, we can discuss any of it. Um, the first is to build tools and services which put software in the service of free speech and journalism rather than the other way around. We need a platform for journalism built with the values and requirements of a free press baked into it. This means education, Columbia, we're trying to do this through data education, through running courses in computational science and journalism. Uh, Cardiff University, Richard Sandbrook has launched a similar initiative. Stanford University has also launched a computational journalism degree in the last year. Um, but we need many others because we need to really reorient uh, what we think of as the core skill sets for journalism. I think it's far too easy at this point to throw up your hands and say we can never compete with Google. You have to remember that 20 years ago, Google was, Google was a PhD thesis. Uh, you know, that, that everybody, starts, everybody starts somewhere in this world. Um, and 10 years ago, Twitter didn't even exist. And this morning, some of you, I'm fairly sure, have not heard of WhatsApp. Maybe you had. Oh, no, somebody had. There was a mm, yes of recognition. Um, change in technology is constant. Yes, it's part of this. Journalists and editors should, I believe, learn to code. They should. Oh no, another heavy sigh. Um, it's really easy. You need to do a little bit, and you never need to use it again. Um, they should learn programmatic thinking, and they should be able to understand the environment that they operate in. We already see in the substantial civic and open software movement that's helped activists throughout the world use things like mesh networks, secure SMS services, and other alternative technologies that skirt compromise and commercial technology, that these things can be highly effective, and yet they haven't been broadly adopted by journalism, and they certainly haven't been embraced and extended. Large journalism, journalism organisations, including the BBC, Reuters, and The Guardian, should embrace and extend these types of technologies, I think, as part of their core mission. Um, this will take quite sophisticated technological thinking and probably hitherto uh, unheard of amounts of collaborative goodwill because, as we know, there's nothing that journalists like more than learning to code than they do collaborating with each other. Um, <laughs> instead, maybe, of news executives enjoying monthly visits to the Googleplex to play around on the bicycles. Sorry, this is the way you can, if you Google meeting bike and look at image, you can see what they've been riding around the campus on. Um, or if you've seen the internship, for which I can only apologise for Hollywood on uh, their behalf. Um, instead, of, instead of going to the Googleplex and being wowed by the shiny toys, maybe news executives should co convene a series of uh, proper series forums about archiving, moderation, deletion, censorship, submission of user information to the authorities. Perhaps that's a better use of 
journalistic engagement with social platforms. The second action uh, is an unfash unfashionable, well certainly unfashionable in America, and incredibly unpopular call for more regulation. Journalism has been uh, firing shots at companies like Google over redundant issues like copyright for years. Uh, I've always maintained that the copyright issue is simply the wrong battle to be picking with uh, Google. Um, there are much more serious regulatory issues uh, relating to monopoly, utility status and opacity and all of these so far have not really formed uh, the core of lobbying cries. In the US uh, last week you'll have seen that President Obama made a very strong statement on net neutrality uh, which took uh, people by surprise but was a very welcome intervention. Um, journalism has a really powerful voice actually in influencing these issues. Uh, it should use both its corporate presence and its intellectual capital to surface and interrogate some of these issues and start a proper and informed conversation about how we should introduce regulation because I think it's inevitable. And then the third and the most achievable, for journalists at least, is to report. Report, report, report. Cover technology as a human rights and political issue. Cover it as if it were Parliament, maybe even a bit more, with a bit more verve and clarity, <laughs> were that possible. <laughs> it's just as interesting, and it's about 10,000 times more important at the moment. The beats of data, privacy, algorithmic accountability currently either don't exist or they're woefully understaffed. We have to stop covering technology being about queuing for an iPhone and make it about society and power. We need to explain these new systems of power to the world and hold them accountable in exactly the way that Alan and his team did for the NSA leaks. And reporting is, after all, what we do best. Right, so I'm just about finished. Uh, so I started with a question, which sounds like the cover line for a bad dating app, which is uh, make up or break up. I don't actually have an answer to that, apart from to say that as a relationship status goes, it's very complicated. But journalism needs at least, I think, to be an equal partner in this most modern of relationships. How you get there, I leave at least partly to you. Thank you very much. Um, very much indeed. Um, I hope he gets up the microphones up on the back there. Can you hear? Good. Um, there's a huge amount to talk about, and uh, we've got an excellent panel to uh, kick off with. Um, I suppose if there's one sentence from that really full and fascinating lecture that I pick out, it's when Emily said, I do not think it is feasible for journalism or civic media to have a completely adversarial relationship with technology companies. But I also think it's absolutely imperative that there's a public sphere which journalism is a part which is not wholly reliant on my guess is that's what we're going to keep on coming back to. Now, to discuss the lecture, um, I'm joined by two members of the Reuters Institute Advisory Board. Alan Rusbridger, Editor-in-Chief of The Guardian, who's been there well, since the 20th century, really, um, since uh, <laughs> um, And uh, who essentially has reconceived a newspaper as a global online brand, melding the tech and journalistic cultures, or has he? Vivian Schiller, on my left, formerly Global Chair of News on Twitter, as she led the company's strategy for news and partnerships with journalism organisations. Before that, she was with NBC News, Discovery, New York Times, the CEO of National Public Radio. And along with them, we have Badav Chinapa, who is Head of International News Partnerships at Google. 
I think, um, but I think we looked at it was 2010, uh, and uh, before then um, at the BBC and at APTV and uh, as a BBC News. So I'm going to ask all of them to pick up on some of the points that um, Emily raised. Madam, I'm going to start with you. I mean, Emily's thesis, she said, legacy media did not understand what it was losing. Silicon Valley did not understand what it was creating. And I suppose it is a charge she's putting um, to, to you. It's that tech companies are essentially dodging an argument about editorial responsibility. They didn't intend to have it, but they've got it. They are shaping a news agenda. And this can't be a neutral technological act. What would you make of that? I think it's a very fair comment. I would say <coughs> that some of the main technological companies operate in different ways. Um, and we were having this discussion beforehand about the processes and how you work it, work this through. And I think, at least from a Google perspective, I think that um, we're sort of old for technology company. We're only 16 years old. I mean, and I think that's actually very, very relevant. I work for the AP and for the BBC, very old companies that go through, work through processes, come up with systems, have you know handbooks and all things like that. Um, and I think at least looking between Google, Facebook, and Twitter, I think that Google's maybe been making mistakes a little longer than the other ones, and so it has a bit of a better process for dealing with some of that stuff. Whereas I think it's very fresh now for for Twitter, and the example about you know the ISIS videos is you know, is, a, is a very solid one. So I think that it depends where they are in that growth process. I mean, internally they even talk about you know we're just a teenager, so I think they realize they've got a lot to learn and. Uh, a lot to understand, and everything is changing so quickly that they're trying to figure it out as they go along. And some of these issues are challenging, brand new ones that they don't know. And, and as, they, as, as Emily said, didn't really accept or want to take on board. Um, and so they're trying to work out that process. And I think a great example of that is how to deal with the right to be forgotten. You know, this was not something that Google wanted. Actually, went all the way up as far as it could, going, you know, we know this is a good idea, not. Not, not part of what we do. I think we have a much more eloquent official line, by the way. Anyway. Um, um, and then when the ruling came out, we said, okay, we have to respect the ruling. The ruling didn't tell us how to do it. Uh, how to, you know, so that's why we con you know, are conducting a series of roundtables to discuss and to understand and to work this out in a more transparent way. We'll come back to this in a second, but uh, Vivian, your background in journalism for many years, you go to Twitter, is there any crossover in the cultures and the assumptions at all? I would say yes. There, <coughs> there's, there are many points of non-crossover. But I would say that the point of crossover is, is Twitter, you know, though it is a teenager and though it is trying to find its way when it comes to uh, editorial content and decisions around what you take down, at, at a top level, Twitter is very, very committed to global free expression in a way that any legitimate news organization is. So I think the will is there. The will around free expression at the top level is there. It's, 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 it's a matter of how, how do you create a framework to make those kind of decisions about what you allow to publish, what you're not allowed to publish. This is something that news organizations have been doing for decades and decades, and, and, and in some cases, 150 years. And so there is, you know, for tech companies, I think a little bit of the reinventing the wheel is, Emily points out about how you how you um, find that point of intersection around free expression and the responsibility that comes with being a platform that publishes uh, content. So 
as you said, when there's something like having to do with the headings, people are going to a war room. As you said, they're making it up as they go along. Is that essentially a recognition that there aren't systems that can go with this? There have got to be what we would call editorial judgments that have been made. I would say that the policies are evolving. I mean, there's, a, <laughs> there's an evolution of the policies. They're of trying to figure out how do you make these kind of decisions in a, you know, for a company that hasn't, as Emily points out, has not ever had to deal with these things before. It's very easy to say we support free expression. We support you know, the rights of people to be able to publish and to reach anybody on earth. But the reality comes down when you have a heading video or you have you know, issues around abuse and all kinds of other things, how do you then um, uh, you know, have a platform that is, you know, that is clean and well lit, so to speak, that is, a, that is a place that anybody can come to where you, where you can both support free expression yet not allow um, you know, the kinds of content that, frankly, any news organization would not have any trouble making judgment about. But you've been making judgment for years in the world yes, of journalism. Right. So you go to Twitter, right. uh, you have whole set assumptions in your head about right. how you take those editorial judgments. Yeah. Do those read across into <coughs> Well, that wasn't my role, though. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was part of the media group, and right. so my role was to work uh, externally with news organizations on how they can use Twitter in, in various ways. So that was not part of the discussion I Well, just picking up on this point, you go from BBC to Google. How did you find the culture and the connection more than one? Um, it, it's fair to say that it was a bit of a cultural difference between BBC and Google. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the first thing was uh, going from being the youngest guy at a BBC meeting to being the oldest guy at a Google meeting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think this, there, the, the culture point is very bad. And there is, I think it's very easy to point out the differences. And uh, as I always say, you know, the engineers aren't human, right? Uh, and they don't like to say that, but I say it to them. But you know, they they think very very differently, and um, I think media organizations and news organizations think very differently as well. And it's just a very a very simple example is simply trying to have a conversation with an engi a Google engineer. They will be on their laptop, and you kind of go, could you just have eye contact with me and listen? But they're actually, just, you know, it's just it's just part of the process. So that's some of the cultural differences. But I think there's a lot of similarity, as um, uh, as Vivian was pointing out, that actually, I think, you know, from a Google perspective, the, the freedom of expression, the power of the internet, all those things are are good things that people uh, that at, at Google believe in, from the engineers to you know to everybody within the organization, and they do stuff along that way. And it shouldn't be all about Google, but they do things that they don't really need to do as a company. I think prove those values. If you look at you know uh, the crisis response and some of the stuff they try to do to take technological tools to help when there is a you know a disaster, I think it shows a little bit of the principle behind where they're coming from. But culturally, they're very different. And uh, I, I joke internally that I'm, I'm I feel sometimes like Kofi and I. I'm, I'm between the engineers and the news industry. I'm trying to get the two of them to talk to each other because they speak very different languages. But then we talk about the trade that Oxford Bruce was essentially saying that. Moral complexity, issues of moral complexity, when engineers confronted with them, uh, Google engineers uh, confronted with them, very difficult to take on board. Well, I think that they approach those moral questions in a different way. So it's not as though they don't want them, they don't want to take them on board, but you know, I think they have a very systematic approach to this, and everything seems very much driven around quantitative. And a lot of what you do in the news industry is very qualitative, editorial judgments, and this is good, and this is bad. And 
You know, I was on a I was on a panel actually last week at News Exchange, a, a broadcasters news conference, where it was the editor, the the algorithm is the new editor question mark, and it was all very much, oh, you know, always oh, the editor of the journal is going to get replaced by computers, and what's this going on? And somebody from the BBC, somebody from BetaWorks, and, and, and me, and I'm by the way I'm deeply non-technical, so it was kind of ironic that I'm speaking for a technology company, but. Um, you know, I think the interesting part there for me in terms of the evolution is how the technology gives us more information now in the news industry than we ever had before. And I think it's really about how we use it and how we use it for good that, that is, is the challenge and is actually the thing that excites me. Oh, as we've been listening to this, and a couple of things that Emily said. One was, if there's a free press, journalists are not in charge of it. And then at the end of that, you say, look, you have to report technology as a human right and a political issue as we were parliament. What was, as you listened to Emily talk, did you share their analysis as a running a neuralization with the first term going to this space a few years ago? Um, wait, yeah, I mean, I worship it, don't I? Technology, and I, I don't think we, any of us do uh, enough of it or take it seriously. Um, whether it's 10,000 times more important than Parliament, we can argue, but, but it, it, it's a massively undercover um, subject. So I agree about that. I, and I, I was really interested, I, I, I noted that um, that we're no longer in charge of uh, our journalism, and I don't know if I can. Agree about that because I, I think actually it it seems to me that as the years go by, it is apparent that journalists have skills and do things that the technology companies can't do and don't want to do. Uh, and I think that does give us a power. It's not a power that we've yet translated into uh, monetary value. Uh, and it, we might want to talk about that because I, the, the, the three things that Emily said at the end were all really um, uh, charges to journalists to do things differently uh, as opposed to, so I think if we're, if we're going to make up, um, it would be interesting to see what, what the, the equivalent things one would be asking from the tech companies. Uh, if, if they're interested in making up, I, I, I don't know if they are. I mean, they're, they're so rich and so powerful. Uh, maybe that there's not much in it for them, but uh, I think there's, there was a there's always been a, a sense uh, on the, on the journalistic side of it that things somehow aren't fair, and, and that's either whinging whinging journalists who sort of grow up and, and do the things that Emily says and build their own tools, um, but there's a sense that, and, and, and Google are certainly facing it in Europe, starting in Germany now that actually the the, 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 the tech companies. Uh, have had a bit of a laugh in terms of uh, taking uh, the, the, the content and, and the data of the users and, and not really coming to an equitable arrangement with the press. So uh, I think that if, if you were going to talk about making up, then that would certainly be something that should be on the table in that discussion. I'm not going to regulation point in a moment, but I suppose, well, it's interesting, at one stage said, uh, journalism or civic media. And uh, I wonder if this, what's happening at the moment, though, is as social networks take over people's lives, uh, the tools by which they negotiate life, 
So the whole concept of a civic network, which is where like, analog journalism existed, is just gradually being squeezed and is, um, from the point of view of tech companies, is anachronism. Well, I, th I think um, I, th I think there is a. I mean, I've, I've always thought of journalism as a as a public service and a, and a sort of civic space, uh, uh, and I'm extremely interested in that. And, and it's obviously not quite the same as a, as a social network. Um, but I think, particularly in the British context, I think journalists have been very bad at making that argument. Um, <coughs> Part of the Street Street has been such a a, a ruthless uh, commercial operation for so long that as it ceases to be quite so commercial, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think um, uh, actually thinking a bit more deeply about our, our, our pitch as, as, uh, as a public service is as an important thing that we ought to be thinking about. When it comes to the there will be lots of points that people want to raise. I just want to ask one thing then before I do. At the end, you reach for the R word, the regulation word. Mm -hmm. Often the sense of people do that without a panic. Um, that uh, what <coughs> when we see the, um, the the issues of regulation as relating to transnational networks like this, issues of jurisdiction, where does one begin to actually put a framework around regulation that could possibly work? Can regulation only really work by consent? Well, I mean, you know, this. That is, they say, the $64 billion question. <laughs> um, even starting the conversation. So, so one thing that has happened is that tech companies have gone, we can't be regulated. And actually, particularly in America, there is a very strong anti-regulation kind of impulse. Uh, and so it's almost like the, the, until, until we really have a net neutrality debate in the States, the idea that you would regulate a successful um, company uh, that was, well you can't even define really what markets are, so things like antitrust or what's, you know, what, what constitutes a monopoly, um, it's very hard for regulators to, to grapple with. It, we can't deny that, and Madoff brought up the um, right to be forgotten ruling from Europe, which said if somebody objects to a uh, search result, that their name put into a search result, return a certain result, then Google must unlink the term from the result. So in other words, it's not like taking content down, it still exists on the service, it still exists in newspaper archives, but you can't find it. Now, of course, the problem with that is that we use Google now as a utility. You know, that these, are, these, have got, these companies have gone beyond <laughs> a, a point where you could sensibly say there's competition is either really sort of likely or desirable, you know, it actually works, it, it serves people very well that there are systems that work incredibly quickly where you can reliably return information, sort of, you know, click of a button. Should those be within companies which can change ownership, which is, you know, I always like to play the game with my students when I go, when, what happens when North Korea buys Google? Like, surely that would never happen. Go, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Um, so, 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 where, so, so, yeah, so the answer is you have to start somewhere. We don't have the right regulatory framework. We have piecemeal international regulation. How the, how the internet is governed, again, is a sort of a central issue. And you know, it's a, you start all of these by recognising there's a problem. 
and I think at the moment we've got some people saying, look, look, where the tech companies said there is not a problem, this is not problematic, but I think we, we, we must accept that that's not the case now. Well, actually, I mean, the Brussels increasingly has taken the lead and say, well, they have a centralised track. You know, this is a pan-national issue. This is a pan-national issue. It goes beyond borders. And actually, it's very interesting when uh, Vivian was saying, you know, Google is about free speech. I mean, the, the bit that I didn't get into is that, yes, we're all in favour of free speech. I don't want to be the journalism professor that says I'm not in favour of free speech. That would be very bad news. Um, but, you know, there are different standards of free speech around the world. And actually, what's happening is the American standard of free speech is defining how it, and it's not free speech anyway. It's like if you breach copyright or if you have nudity on a YouTube video, it's down like that. You know, if if you if you perpetuate hate speech, it's quite likely to sit on the servers for a long time. So. Let, let me go to the audience. There's a lot of questions. So, um, if you say who you are, um, <coughs> um, some comments.